Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you know I have a free on-demand masterclass called Five Steps to Writing a Novel Without Letting Perfectionism or Procrastination Get in the Way. In this free training, I cover things like where perfectionism comes from, how it's directly linked to procrastination, and what you can do right now to start making real progress with your writing. I also talk about the problem with popular plotting methods and how they can do more harm than good, especially if you're brand new to writing. And last but certainly not least, I share some of the most common mistakes I see writers make so you can avoid them and make this the year you finish your novel. If this sounds like something you're interested in, you can sign up for free at savannagilbo.com forward slash training. One more time, that's savannagilbo.com forward slash training to get your hands on this free masterclass. It's an interesting thing to think about because we're in book seven. Because I liked what you said earlier about character that we have to care. Mm -hmm. And by book seven, we better care about the character, right? That's what the first six books were for. But it's not just like we're done once we get to book seven. We still Mm -hmm. have to introduce Harry in a way that we're signing up for another book and we're rooting for him. You know, I think that's part of why we have this. It's almost, again, we always say prologue in disguise, right? It's like, here's what he's up against. Look how pretty cold and evil Voldemort is. It's just another point in Harry's column of why we care about him. Welcome to the Fiction Writing Made Easy podcast. My name is Savannah Gilbo, and I'm here to help you write a story that works. I want to prove to you that writing a novel doesn't have to be overwhelming. So each week, I'll bring you a brand new episode with simple, actionable, and step-by-step strategies that you can implement in your writing right away. So whether you're brand new to writing or more of a seasoned author looking to improve your craft, this podcast is for you. So pick up a pen and let's get started. In today's episode, we're diving deep into the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, and I can't believe we're already on the last Harry Potter book. I'm both sad and excited because we are probably going to keep these first chapter analysis episodes going, and we're going to branch out into other genres if we do. So I'm sad to leave the Harry Potter world, but I'm excited to dig into some other first chapters. So once again, I am joined by a very special guest, Abigail Perry, who is a developmental editor and the host of an amazing podcast called Lit Match, where she helps writers find the best literary agent for their writing and publishing careers. I will link to her podcast in the show notes, as well as where you can find Abigail around the internet. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, then you already know the deal about these first chapter episodes. But just in case you're brand new here, or in case you need a reminder, Abigail and I are taking a look at the first chapter in each of the Harry Potter books to see how Rowling hooks our interest and pulls us into the story. It's also been fun to see how she develops not only as an author from book to book, but also how these first chapters change from book to book too. So like I said in today's episode, we're digging into the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, and we're going to analyze it on both the macro level and the micro level. So basically we're asking, why does this chapter work? And then how does the scene or the scenes within this chapter work? So that's a very quick overview of what we're going to dig into today. You'll hear more explanation for everything once we get further into the episode. So with that being said, let's go ahead and dive right into the conversation. We are going to talk about the last book in the Harry Potter series, or at least the last first chapter in the series. Right. And I think like just based on my notes, I'm already excited to go through some of what we have, but I'm going to put you on the spot because you put me on the spot last time. (laughs) Why do you love this book? Why is it your favorite? (laughs) It's good to throw it back at me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I have a similar answer to you 
in the sense that there's a lot with Snape in this book. And I mentioned in the last call, Snape is also my favorite character in the series. I'm fascinated by his ability to shapeshift and to constantly risk his life for someone that he doesn't even really care about, but out of love for the mother of that person. So that's Mm -hmm. fascinating to me. And with Deathly Hollows, it becomes the deepest and darkest of the books. We look at the difference between Horcruxes and Deathly Hollows. Right. And I think that concept fascinates me. I gravitate towards stories that deal with grief. I definitely gravitate towards stories that deal with courage and sacrifice and what that means. I also love finales. And this is the finale. So we're going to see full character arcs. And I think that this is, I, I have a lot of catharsis in this story, even to a lot of payoffs. Yeah, you know, and it's like looking at the difference between the books and the films. And I really love the first film of the Deathly Hollows, but I not that I disliked it, but I don't like the second film as much because they changed a yeah. lot. And there are things that have come out in the book that are really cathartic in the sense of like even um creature actually fights right. in the Battle of Hogwarts and he's like, Fight for my master and the lock right. is like on his like bouncing on his chest and stuff like that. They're just like really satisfying character arc moments. I think when the scene with Dumbledore and Harry between of worlds is one of my favorite scenes of yeah. all time. So like there's a lot of happiness there. But specifically I go to this is really when Harry becomes the hero. Not that he hasn't been a hero in every other book. He has. He obviously is he's yeah. the protagonist and that's the whole arc. But in this in Deathly Hollows in particular, we see Harry grapple with this internal quarrel of did he actually know who Dumbledore was? And in that, Dumbledore has planted clues where Harry has to decide, and I I forget what chapter it is, there is a discussion about the idea of, is Harry going to choose to go after the Hollows or to go after the Horcruxes? And that is such an interesting debate in itself, because we obviously, what Voldemort would choose as the opposite of Harry, very similar, but the opposite in choice. And Harry, he puts the Hollows aside where Voldemort is going after Hollows. And it's the sense of Harry knows that if he could get the Hollows, once he starts to believe that, that those are real, maybe there's a chance that he could survive. But he willingly chooses to go after the Four Crooks because he trusts Dumbledore. And he trusts that that was, that was the thing that was going to give him the, the chance of defeating Voldemort, even if it meant his death. That yeah. whole internal struggle and the grandiose of the big action scenes that we're going to get was really powerful to me. So I think that's why I go there. And then anything to do with Snape, I mean, I have an always pillow on my couch and (laughs) always stay there. (laughs) I've been always lock it because that's just incredibly beautiful. so powerful. It really is. Like, how do you not cry? So, And I think that's so cool what you said. Like, just if you just think about this choice of Hallows versus Horcruxes, that's huge. Mm -hmm. And there's many people we've heard and seen about throughout history, like Grindelwald, Dumbledore, Voldemort, right, that have had to make this choice. And so now it's like, look at this kid, because he's still a kid. He's what's going to be 17. Mm hmm. He is so, 17, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's an amazing predicament. Talk about a tough crisis, right? Yeah. Which one do I go after? And then I do like all the stuff about Snape that we see in this book. We get the full answer to what we've been waiting for for the last six books. Yes, yeah. Um, and a lot, there's a lot more death, which like, I hate to say I like that, but I enjoy the effects it has on the other characters. And then the other thing I really like too is like you said, Harry becomes the hero, right? He yep. becomes the thing that he's 
been debating this whole time. It's like he steps out into this book in those shoes. And so I think it's a super good book too. I mean, I like them all and we already know Half-Blood Prince is my favorite, but this one's Mm. a close runner up. Yeah. And we should, if we have time at the end, we should talk about some of the the interesting things that happen in this story that I think people debate about a lot, like specifically Ron's character and things like that. So that'd be fun. And I love that your answer is is also something that we relate and connect to. So that's fun. Yeah. Yes. And so, okay, to kick off all these episodes, we do a summary. And Abigail, since this is her favorite book, she has prepared the summary today. Mm-hmm. Wanna go ahead. All right. And I prepared the summary a long time ago and made it long. So I'm going to abridge <laughs> it here. Reader's Digest <laughs> and, version. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the 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 keynotes. <laughs> here we go. In the dark of night, Snape and Yaxley, who is another Death Eater appear at a moonlight gate and they walk through it. This is the gate that is the entrance to Malfoy Manor. Voldemort, along with all of his Death Eaters, are gathering in order to discuss some important details they're trying to make a decision about based on Harry Potter's transportation away from the Dursley's house. Because when Harry Potter comes of age, all the spells that protect the Dursleys will break. When they walk in, Voldemort directs Snape. Snape is placed on the right side of him. So this is insinuating that Snape officially is Voldemort's favorite. And he asks Snape, what news? Snape confirms that the Saturday next, so the next Saturday, the Order of the Phoenix are going to transport Harry away from the Dursleys. And Yaxley interrupts this and says he's heard different information from someone else who works in the Ministry of Magic, who is also an R. Voldemort then has to be thinking about the difference between who is he going to listen to, Snape or Yaxley, because Snape jumps in and smirks and corrects Yaxley and says that his source told him that there was going to be a false trail. That's a lie. Voldemort's interesting in this scene because he has a lot of thoughts to himself and he'll often go off and think in his own. And Snape says, if they do not kill Harry during this transportation of him. He will be secured at an Order of the Phoenix house, which has been given the highest ministry of magic measures of protection. So really, they only have this chance before he goes off to Hogwarts to try to get him. Voldemort talks about how he needs to use another wizard's wand in order to kill Harry because there has been issues with his wand. And when Voldemort is often his own thoughts, he talks about how Harry's survival is due to more his mistakes than to Harry's abilities. He decides to take Lucius's wand, and Lucius and Narcissa and Draco are obviously unhappy with Voldemort caging them in their house and living there. Voldemort has senses this and just completely ridicules and embarrasses the Malfoys. Even Bellatrix Lestrange at one point, which was interesting, we learned that Lupin and Tonks have just gotten married. And all of this... Voldemort has captured or someone has captured Charity Burbage, who is the teacher at Hogwarts of Muggle Studies. She wrote in the paper a news article about how she believes that breeding, is what Voldemort says, between muggles and wizards is desirable. This is an insult to everything Voldemort and the Death Eaters believe in. So he's captured her to make a statement. She wakes up She tries to reach out to Severus for help. Severus does not extend that help to her. And eventually Voldemort kills her and Nagini gets to eat her at the end. 
And that's the Dark Lord ascending. So obviously dark things are going on. (laughs) Yeah, no big deal. A lot of stuff going on in that scene. Mm -hmm. And for anyone listening, if you just heard a weird little noise, it's my dog under my desk. (laughs) It's not me. But okay, so that's awesome. And now we're going to go into the big picture macro analysis. Just like before, we're going to use Paula Meunier's seven questions that she gives in the Writer's Guide to Beginnings. Mm -hmm. And I think you're kicking us off with question one, right? Yep. So I will start you off with question one. And of course, we're returning to the idea of something to do with genre. What kind of story is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows? Right. And so we look at this in two ways. One of the ways is what's the commercial genre? So I'd say we're still in young adult fantasy. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. Of course. Okay. And then where I think in terms of content genre, which is the type of story we're reading, I'd say we're still in action and worldview territory. And we're, like Abigail said, completing that arc that we started way back in book one. Mm-hmm, definitely. And it's so great, like you said, because we are completing our arc, we're going to get the big arc. I know, Samantha, you've mentioned a lot about sacrifice mm-hmm. as a key component of the action story. And we're going to have multiple sacrifices. Right. But of, of course, like Harry's sacrifice as well in this one. So I think it definitely checks that box. <laughs> right. Yep. Great. Okay. And so question number two deals with plot. And the question is, what is the story really about? Right. And so we just got a whole download on that in the summary. It's bringing the battle of Voldemort and Harry to a head. I want to say there's not a whole lot other than that because this is what we're supposed to focus on. But to do that, of course, Harry has to find either the Hallows or the Horcruxes and do something depending on which route he chooses, Mm -hmm. which ultimately leads him to facing Voldemort per the prophecy. Neither can live while the other survives. Definitely. And While that is so fascinating and the most literal of what the story is about, we are working towards the battle of Hogwarts, right? We're working towards the final moment where we'll see who will survive. Like Savannah just said, I always like to remind, especially these fantasy action writers, that if you do not put character at the center of the story and we don't care about who dies or lives, that your story is going to fall flat. So if you notice my answer to why I loved The Deathly Hallows so much, My answer actually went to, yes, we're facing something that says, yes, we're facing these insurmountable odds. But at the same time, what I cared the most about was the internal quarrel and that dealt with this mentor who has raised Harry, essentially, to make these big choices and within that making those big choices. So is he, as the internal story, yes, like on the most literal level, I think we're working to find the Horcruxes, kill the Horcruxes, kill Voldemort. And then the Deathly Hollows throws in this interesting extra debate with it. Right. And then inside of that, it's a lot dealing with, do I trust Dumbledore or do I not trust Dumbledore? Well, and we even see like best friends question that. Right. And like you said earlier, this is kind of the the moment of his character arc where he's either going to be Harry version one or he's going to be Harry version two. Mm-hmm. And so he, you said he faces this, am I Dumbledore's guy? Am I going to trust him? And do kind of like, he's working towards the same ultimate goal, right? Mm-hmm. He's on the side of good. So it's kind of just like, how am I going to do that? Where am I going to put my trust? Where does my loyalty lie? And how am I going to defeat evil? It's an interesting thing to think about because we're in book seven. Because I liked what you said earlier about character that we have to care. Mm -hmm. And by book seven, we better care about the character, right? (laughs) That's what the first six books were for. But it's not just like we're done once we get to book seven. We still Mm -hmm. have to introduce Harry in a way that we're signing up for another book and we're rooting for him. You know, I think that's part of why we have this. It's almost, again, we always say prologue in disguise, right? It's like, here's what he's up against. 
look how pretty cold and evil Voldemort is. It's just another point in Harry's column of why we care about him. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great point, Savannah. It's going to bring us into our next two questions. Number three, dealing with point of view and number four, dealing with character. As we've gotten tighter with these books, I feel like these questions get tighter and tighter to, yeah. as well. Like yeah. you can't really answer plot without POV, without characters. Right. So question number three deals with point of view, as I just mentioned. And the question is, who is telling the story? I kind of want to back up for a second. So th- the one thing I want to mention on plot too is that we just lost Dumbledore in book six. Yes. I feel like that's something important to just refresh our memories on is like he's not only is Harry having to decide all this, he has to decide it without his mentor, which even if you were writing, let's say, a one book action worldview story, typically the mentor is nowhere to be found in this final moment anyway. I just like to think about it like that, like one book or seven books. It's the same type of thing going into that climax. Mm-hmm. That's such a great point. And I think when, you st- when you've studied storytelling for so long, it's pretty easy to predict when the mentor is going to go out. Right. <laughs> I mean, whether or not that means a literal they die or not, the mentor has to be removed because the hero can't become the hero unless they right. either have absorb or don't absorb what the mentor has taught them to do it on their own. They have to self-actualize, right? Yeah. So, or to self-transcend, but whatever the two are. Rowling managed to have a mentor for six books and then only in the seventh book. So that's kind of crazy to me because you look at like a lot of other series and there aren't that many books in a series. So like how she used a mentor right, and still had a mentor moment in this book is crazy to me. But Well, and part of it too is that there isn't just one mentor. Like I think about someone like Lupin or even, I mean, Hagrid and McGonagall sometimes act as mentors, right? Just because they're teachers and they're close to Harry. But we had Lupin, we had Sirius, we have the Weasley family. So it's not like everything's reliant upon Dumbledore. No. If it was, maybe he wouldn't have lasted till book seven. I don't know. No, probably not. But I think that what's interesting is that you just mentioned a group of mentors and all of them are adequate mentors. All of them. We've discussed discussed this in a previous episode about how important Harry's to be Harry placed in this source of mentorship where Voldemort didn't really have any of that. Maybe he did when he got the Hogwarts for early life. He didn't have any of that. It's just so interesting to see how at seven he loses actually everyone because he has to. He has to go off on his own. At this point, even there's reoccurring scenes where Lupin wants to help Harry. Harry keeps telling him, no, Dumbledore told me that I need to only have Hermione and Ron with me. Right. So it's just so he keeps Hermione and Ron like they are. Well, kind of. Yeah. Ron disappears. Right. Yeah, I guess. So it's like he really gets down to bare bones and then eventually Ron comes back. But 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 in the end, he always has to do it on his own. And that's the point, right? Goes in the forest on his own. Right. Exactly. All right, so to, we are sidetracked a little bit because I had to throw that in there. But yeah. <laughs> question, well, that's question, okay. I think it's good. Yeah, question number three deals with point of view. And the question is, who is telling the story? Right, and so I think this is a fun example because it is the most omniscient-leaning chapter that I think we've seen so far because we're still kind of over the story, zooming into one character. And it was funny because I haven't read this book in a while. Mm-hmm. And when I first read it, I'm thinking, oh, okay, we're going to follow Snape. You know, and then we do for a second and then we get into the room, into the drawing room of Malfoy Manor. And then it's almost like Voldemort becomes the central character. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see kind of why we landed on this answer later, because he owns, quote unquote, owns those five commandments and that decision. Mm -hmm. But Abigail and I talked about this like two weeks ago where we're like, gosh, so many characters have 
decisions in this scene that it was kind of hard to pick. Yeah. But I think that for that's that's where we are for this question. It's more omniscient than normal mm-hmm. or more zoomed out, more far away from a central character than normal. But we ultimately follow Voldemort. Yes. Yes. And this is especially interesting because Savannah and I are having a discussion a couple of weeks ago before I read this first chapter again about point of view. And we were just talking about this idea of Harry Potter in general. And with with Harry Potter, I do think so much of it is close to Harry that it feels like what we what did you call it? Like just omniscient close or omniscient you you kind of used another third, term. I, I think it was third omniscient. Yeah. It feels like there's a lot of ways to kind of call something. Oh yeah. So this idea though, it's like I think for the majority of the Harry Potter books, we've consistently seen now in these first chapters that we are zooming out to then zoom in. And then heavily it's close to Harry. And then every once in a while we'll switch And I think that the point is that no matter what you choose for a point of view, if you do need to switch point of views, it is really important that you understand why you need to switch it, not just because it's convenient because you couldn't think of how to write it through the main character's point of view. And also that if you switch point of views, it moves the story forward. I think that's the big thing. If it's not moving the story forward, why is it in your book, right? Right. And in this, in it, while it's a prologue in disguise, and it is, I totally agree with you, the most omniscient of all of the openings we've had. Um, maybe Sorcerer's Stone, it feels, it like kind of switches to Dumbledore yeah. and McGonagall, and you don't really know, like, are we just following Dumbledore McGonagall? You are right. just following Vernon, though, in that first scene. Where this one, you're not really following Snape, you're not following Yaxley, you're not following, like, it feels closest to Voldemort, but it actually takes quite a bit of time to get to Voldemort. When you look at it percentage-wise, and then I, just from a storytelling perspective, I have to ask myself, how does this move the story forward? What is the purpose of showing us this scene with this point of view if the majority of the story is going to follow from Harry's perspective? And I think part of it is it creates suspense because, well, would it be suspense? Because we know that Harry's going to get attacked. So would suspense be the right? I mean, maybe, because I kind of feel like, is it going to be the right plan? You right. know, did Voldemort, we'll see this later, but did he choose to listen to Snape correctly or are they going to, which is so weird that I'm going to say this, but it's like, or are they going to miss getting Harry? You right. know, because in this chapter, oddly, I'm like invested in the plan, mm-hmm. which is so weird because I don't want Harry to die. But we want to know the outcome. What it, right. What is the plan? Yeah. Who's right? And I think that forever goes back to the idea of while we, I think most readers, if for the first time read, by the time that they get the Deathly Hollows, most people would have a slight suspicion of, is Snape still good? But most people are probably sticking to Harry's perspective where you think that he has turned. I think for me, I always was kind of questioning still a yeah. little bit because I just was fascinated by his character. But probably most people would be thinking, okay, they're on with Harry. They think that he's bad at this point. And that idea, though, that like when you have these, when you show us moments of Snape in scenes like this, as a reflection at the end of the book, you can kind of look back and even respect him even more because you saw what he was up against. I think that also moving the story forward, how do you think that this scene from an omniscient point of view moves the story forward as an opening? Well, to me, it it just sets the stakes. Like, yes. we understand what's going to happen to Harry if Voldemort succeeds. We understand what Voldemort is risking. We know the plan. So it does create that suspense, that dramatic irony whatever we want to call it. And it's kind of a fun way. We don't need to be caught up in the sense that we were in book six, but we do need the stage to be set. 
Yes. And two other things I want to mention, because I was thinking this is actually really interesting that we start with Snape and then we leave him to go to Voldemort because we're still questioning his who he's loyal to. Yeah. So we can't be in his head. And that's a deliberate choice that Rowling made. So it makes sense because if we were in his head, we might see Voldemort's trying to use occlumency on me and I need to protect this secret that yes. is technically good, whatever. Oh, Savannah, that's such a good point. I love that you pulled that out. Well, and then I was thinking about Voldemort because as I was looking at this, I'm looking for that interiority, like where's the subjective, who is the subjective thinker? And there's not much on the page at all. And then I'm like, but does Voldemort even need to think things he's not saying? Because he kind of is just rude and cold and dismissive to everybody. So maybe he doesn't. That's kind of funny because let's say this was a Snape point of view. You'd have what he says and what he thinks and they might be different. Right. But Voldemort's yes. just like saying, oh, what he you know, wants. he just says what he is. Yeah. He doesn't care. It's an interesting choice. Yes. He's the the Marie and Frank of everybody loves Raymond. Well, they, just, <laughs> they don't care what they say. They just say it. But I think that basically, I also think it makes Voldemort scarier. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because while he says what he says exactly what he's thinking, like he just doesn't care what he does to anyone. He kills them right. without any remorse. But it's still interesting to see when he goes off into his own thoughts about the, he has to speak them aloud though, is my point. So when he talks about Harry's survival is more due to my mistakes. It's interesting because I think Voldemort sees himself as so superior to others. He's super scary because he is wildly intelligent and wildly skilled. But at that same time, he's afraid of something and he's trying to figure it out. But it doesn't seem like he really shows that vulnerability to others, even though you can kind of get the sense of there's something inside him that is having doubt, but he's not going to really externalize that to others. Other than this idea of discussing this openly, almost like I've made these mistakes, but I'm not going to make them again, you know? Well, and I think that's the fun part is he's not discussing. He's just telling, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think vulnerability is what makes a character relatable. Mm-hmm. So that we, the fact that we don't see his vulnerability is probably also deliberate. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a huge part of it. And I always love a good villain, and he's definitely one of the best villains of all times. <laughs> I think so, too. Yeah. But yeah, right. it's pretty fun. There's reasons for this choice. If there was a scene with Harry where we were omniscient and more removed, it would not make sense. Because no, for our main character, weird. we need to see that internal debate, the vulnerability, the hopes, the fears, the whatever, to be immersed in it. That's exactly what you get. Immersed in Voldemort or Snape right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, Voldemort, we probably don't even, ever need to be immersed in him. Snape, you could say, but then the reveal gets ruined, right? Mm-hmm. And that's so. so interesting to think about because when stories do have a villain's point of view, because I think, I mean, I definitely had debated, do I write my, my villain's point of view or not? I think that's yeah. exactly what we have to think about. Is it important to immerse the reader in that point of view? Or are they more effective to to remove us from that? You'll get that with Harry. You mentioned that with Harry. You'll get that immediately in chapter two. Chapter two, when I was analyzing chapter two years ago, it's really hard to pull out the five commandments. I haven't looked at that one as an analytical perspective for a long time, but it's essentially him reading about Dumbledore's obituary memoriam. It's like in memoriam. So the whole thing is setting up his internal debate. We're seeing external stakes in the first chapter. We're seeing internal stakes in the second, which is cool. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something interesting to think about because would it be as effective if it was back-to-back external or back-to-back internal? Probably not. Especially internal, like maybe it wouldn't be the most exciting opening. 
And potentially if it was back-to-back external, it might be exciting, but is there meat to it? Maybe mm-hmm. not. And that's another interesting thing because to reflect on earlier books where we did have openings that felt more internal than external, you can't do that by book seven. By book seven, we're expecting a showdown. We know right. this is the We got to get to it. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that those are some great points. So question number four, we look at character. And the question is, which character should they care about the most? So the obvious answer is Harry. We definitely worry about him as we go through this scene. But it's interesting because... I'll tell you who I thought I should have cared about that I ended mm-hmm. up, I didn't care about was huh? Charity Burbage. Yeah. You like, didn't care I thought, about her at all? I mean, I was kind of like, okay, I've may- and maybe this is the, the burden of having read this so many times, mm-hmm. but I was kind of like, okay, we've already seen him kill muggles. I'm pretty sure she's not going to survive this scene. Oh, so, you know, she's dead. Part of it was, I hate to say this because I'm going to sound really bad, but it was almost like she was part of the setting. Yeah, I don't know. People can be mad at me if they want. But I cared about Draco a lot. I cared about Draco a lot. I was on the fence about Narcissa and Lucius. I I mean, I feel bad because I feel bad for most people when they're around Voldemort. You know, like it's not going to be comfortable. And then I felt bad for Bellatrix a little bit. But Mm. I'm on the fence. I felt pretty bad for Draco. Mm. So interesting. Yeah, what about you? Well, I did care about Charity because... Because you're a nicer human than me. No, because she, I think that you're a wonderful person. (laughs) But I, the reason why I cared about Charity was because of the article she wrote. Yeah. And I saw that as brave. So I saw this thing as like, if she, if we didn't learn that they clearly kidnapped her intentionally after that article. So she probably wrote that knowing that that could risk her life. Right. She wrote, but she stood by her beliefs. So for me, I cared about her for that. I was thinking about this. I hope listeners don't hate me for this, but I was thinking in the comparison of her versus Frank's character. I and knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do know. Yeah. Because so I'm like in the same thing. Yeah. I'm just looking. I think this is the difference of why I admired and cared about Frank in Goblet of Fire more than Charity was because of how they faced their final moments. And Frank, and it, I think it's because it's interesting because I forget what book or what movie it was a long time ago, but basically they talk, oh, you know what? It was the Dark Knight. It was the Joker. And he talks about like, you really know who people are right before you're about to kill them. Right. And it's this interesting thing of Frank, I think just like, maybe this is just me like Phil Gryffindor, but Frank was this, this idea of he was going to stand by what he was going to stand by, even though he knew that this was probably going to be his death. Charity, of course is completely like bound by invisible magic. So she's dead. Like she doesn't even have a chance to fight. Right. She pleads. And I think that's super relatable because that would be extremely scary. But why I cared about her more was because of the article that she wrote and she was brave to write that article. And then I felt bad. I was pity. I felt bad for her in this final moment. Another interesting thing, just I know it's a different conversation, but to talk about adaptions, because in the film adaption, when she turns to Severus, she has an extra line. She says, we're friends. Yeah. And Snape doesn't answer her. Snape never says anything. And in the book version, she does not say that. She just says, Severus, please. Or she might even just say Severus. But basically, he says something that is not, he makes a comment that is like, oh, yeah, I know her. Like, it's a total, It which makes more sense for him playing the double agent role. I found that really interesting because that spoke to his character a lot, too. But anyway, I cared about her for that reason. I cared most about Draco 
and Harry. I cared about Harry, obviously, because I love Harry and I know that this is the plot against him. And it seems like especially if Snape is getting information, Snape is usually right. So if Snape knows the plan, Harry's going to be in trouble. I'm also worried for anyone that Harry is traveling with because we know the lengths that people will go to to protect him. So honestly, my concern for Harry and the others comes more in the chapter of the seven Harry Potters versus this chapter, but it sets up my worry for them later. Right. Draco is the most, I don't think pathetic is the right word. Draco, he's most sympathetic. Draco's the most sympathetic character in this scene because we know that he's caught in something so much bigger than him that he doesn't really want to be a part of anymore, but he has no idea how to get out of it. Right. And it's interesting that coming from the omniscient point of view, they don't name Draco by name. The first time that they mention him, they mention that there's a, a pale boy a at the end. Boy. Yeah. yeah, pale boy, and he's look and he's look keeps looking up at the teacher. So they don't name it's name as the teacher yet. But you just they separate him from the other Death Eaters. And I did care about Lucius much more than I've ever cared about Lucius in other chapters and other books. I really don't have any sympathy for Lucius until this scene, actually. And in this scene, it just seems like, and Savannah and I talked about this off camera, but Narcissa doesn't get enough credit for how amazing of a character she is. She's directing the men in her family what to do in order to survive. So thinking about the lines of that, but Lucius is, he's just, he's a dried up rag at this point. And he's a kind of a prisoner in his house. Bellatrix, I don't think I can ever have sympathy for so I'm gonna well it's funny you say that because I feel bad for her just in the sense that it's like her belief is so blind and she's never going to see the light of day about Voldemort mm-hmm. so it's like she's kind of just a car crash waiting to happen mm-hmm. you know and I, I think that's probably how Lucius feels about his own life is it's like I'm, I'm so far in it all I can do is like focus on how to survive this situation yeah you know like I think Lucius is thinking I think he actually does love his family, but Narcissa's intentions are always in the back of her mind. I think if we were talking about objectives, Narcissa's only objective is save my son first, save my family second. I don't care about whatever else it is. My job is to save my son. And hopefully I can save my husband and myself as well, which is kind of like mirroring Lily Potter in a weird way. But Narcissa, of course, is like Molly Weasley. And always, yes, Molly Weasley. And it's interesting because, like you said, that's her objective always. Think about the action she takes at the end in the forest where yeah. she whispers to Harry, is Draco still alive? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know that's like way ahead. But We could do a whole academic essay on motherhood in this series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But I also just found the spot where Charity looks at Snape and she says, Severus, please, please. And like, holy cow, imagine sitting there being Snape you are thinking about that moment with Dumbledore. You know, oh, you yeah. can't not be hearing the same words. Yeah. Whew. Sad. Yeah. Well, and I think that with Snape, just to go into the complexities of his character, he is so determined to do what he has decided to sacrifice his life to do, which is to protect Harry, that nothing else rivals that. He's able to do all these incredibly hard things because of how much... He wants to save Harry for Lily, which is nuts to me because um, love is so strong. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, because you always wonder, it's just that line of we're friends in the movie versus absent in the book makes me think because I always wonder, like, is Severus 
really a complete lone wolf in the sense that does he not even really have colleague friends? Is, is Dumbledore really the only one that he ever associated with? Or was he friendly with his colleagues? We don't really ever yeah. get that sense in the books. You don't really know. And I tend to lean more towards the side of I think he just completely isolated himself because, so he, too. because he didn't want to get close to anyone that was going to interfere with what he wanted to do. Yeah. Which is sad. Yeah, it's sad. And it's he's so fun to think about. We could literally spend hours talking about him. There's this part where Snape tries, I mean, uses Aquamancy on him. And we've known for books that Snape is really good at it, right? That's why mm -hmm. he was teaching Harry. And I'm just going to read this part because I like it. So yeah, you do it. Vol Voldemort's red eyes fastened upon Snape's black ones with such an intensity that some of the watchers looked away, mm -hmm. apparently fearful that they themselves would be scorched by the ferocity of the gaze. Snape, however, looked calmly back into Voldemort's face, and after a moment or two, Voldemort's lipless mouth curved into something like a smile. So it's like, we know what's going on there. It's not just a calculating look of like, do yes. I trust what yes. he's saying? Yes. He's literally trying to get in his mind, and Snape is so powerful at it, at blocking, that he keeps him out. It's really cool. That's my favorite line in the whole chapter. Yeah. And it's a testament to the power of sharing information with the reader so they have knowledge and then using it at the right moment right as well you know saving all of that so that by the time that we're again at book seven we know things by this point that that's right. extra satisfying because of that versus in chamber of secrets when snape is basically lecturing ron and harry and showing up late and he thinks they should be expelled and yeah. that's the first time that there's an indication that snape can read minds he looks at harry and remember eye contact is really important in oculent legitimacy and basically, Harry says it internally that he always gets this feeling that Snape is reading your mind. So yeah, look at like how as calmly he's reading his mind. Yeah. So crazy. It's anyway. really cool. <laughs> so we were on character talking about who we care about. Mm -hmm. The other thing I was thinking while you were talking about Frank Rice is yes. that it's really interesting the way we meet a lot of, I don't want to say side characters, but I guess they are. Like when we meet, what's his name? The professor that I love. In what book? Half-Blood Prince. Professor Slughorn? Yeah. Yes. So it's interesting when how we meet Slughorn, who's taking this cowardly role, mm -hmm. right? And then we meet mm -hmm. someone like Charity Burbage, or we hear about her. That's like meeting to me. And she's doing something brave. We meet Frank Bryce. I remember in the Frank Bryce episode, we said, like, we're getting that flavor of Harry and bravery and Gryffindorness. And I think in the sense of this, it's heavy Slytherin leaning, but we also get that she wrote this really cool article. She's like that flavor of bravery. Mm -hmm. So is Snape in a way, but Snape is super brave. Yeah. I mean, Snape is the bravest man that Harry Potter has ever known. So Except we don't, we don't know that technically yet. No, so we don't like know that. we're cheating saying that, but that's true. Yeah. It's just really interesting. And also, side note, because you guys can't see us, but we accidentally wore our house colors today. So Abigail's in like a maroon and I'm wearing blue. She's a Gryffindor and I'm Ravenclaw. So yep. we just thought that was funny. Yes. And a happy coincidence. Yes. <laughs> okay. So let's move on to question number five, which is about setting. And the question is, where and when does the story take place? We are at Malfoy Manor and the main part of the scene takes place in the drawing room. We know that it's weeks before Harry's 17th birthday right mm -hmm. yes weeks because we know that the actual moving day is going to be the saturday next and the fake plan is the night before his birthday right probably late june early july would be my guess because if his birthday is july 31st they're moving him before right, right, that right. first night that would be the timing and then again the location is interesting because we're going to malfoy manor from an omniscient perspective which yeah is cool. 
And this is interesting too, because I think had we not started at Malfoy Manor, it would be a little weird to go to Malfoy Manor later. Yes. So it's kind of a nice tie or a completion of that loop that we start there. And then we have that big scene at the end. Yeah. And really interesting to go to Malfoy Manor, especially since we've had so many discussions about Malfoy Manor, but never visited it itself. Right. So it's really cool that like we understand that this is supposed to be this grand place. And they walk Yaxley and Sneak walk in and they... There's peacocks. Yeah, there's peacocks. They're worried. <laughs> they're they're yeah. worried about a noise. And it's like, no, it's a peacocks. Literally, like, that's the same person who she says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then to know that Voldemort's also camping out in Malfoy Manor is interesting. To know that Bellatrix Lestrange is also staying there as well. We know that it's this dark place. And then we return there as a, pretty much a midpoint moment, which is interesting. And it feels like Draco probably doesn't go anywhere than Hobbit's. With Malfoy Manor at this point, it feels like the the Malfoys themselves are kind of trapped Trapped. in this house, which is another reason to be sympathetic for them. Okay, question number six, we're moving into the core emotion. How should the reader feel about what's happening? Yeah, so this one's interesting because the one, if I could pick one word for this scene, it's like I felt the coldness. We're a little bit shocked at how cold Voldemort is because... Okay, yes, he hates muggles and he kills Charity Burbage, but none of his Death Eaters are safe from being picked on or being humiliated, except maybe Snape, who's like the golden boy. He picks on Draco to mess with Lucius. He, like you said earlier, talks about how not destroying Harry at this point is more about mistakes he's made and nothing to do with Harry. And it's like really getting into Voldemort's psyche without actually doing it. Yeah, I think that the word that I would use is dangerous. Yeah. I, I like that you said coldness. I think that that is more sensual. Wow, it's, I imagine it like ice, like trickling yeah. across the grass oh, or something like that, right? It's not the warm fuzzies that you typically feel. No. <laughs> and, and, and we always feel warm fuzzy, but it's like that comfort of opening a Harry Potter book and then you open it and you're like, whoa. But what I love about the difference with that, and I love that you use coldness as the emotion, and I'm using danger because I think that a typical action story usually opens up with more of an attack of some sort. I think that this is a much more effective scene than an attack. Yes, technically there is a crime. They kill kill Charity Burbage, so there is a death in this. But the danger and the coldness comes from, again, the character really seeing how Voldemort has no limits to what he's willing to do and has no remorse for what he does. He is right in every viewpoint that he has, which is his own only. (laughs) Well, and no one's going to stand up to him either. Right. I think that that's a really interesting way to describe this and definitely created some visuals in my mind. So I hope it did for listeners too. I think because of what we just said, the danger and the coldness, we're naturally more worried and concerned than we've been that way in other books. But there's like that curiosity sense, that Mm -hmm. wonder sense. Mm -hmm. And here we're leaning pretty heavily towards concern and dread, fear. Which is so interesting because I think that in the majority of main scenes in an action story, you feel that sense of excitement. So it's like, I mean, you know, you're you're worried, you're scared about certain things that can happen, but there's this thrill of sorts, not quite a thriller thrill, but an excitement of here comes bad guy versus good guy type of thing. With this, you're going into a darker place, the eeriness of this setting and the coldness of how the characters treat, mainly how Voldemort treats I would say how Snape treats other characters, though, too. You yeah. can see that puts an extra layer onto what the story is and what it's capable of doing. Right. I think. And that leads us perfectly into question number seven, which deals with stakes, the ever important stakes. The question is, why should the readers care about what happens next? 
We care because like we've been saying the whole time, we know that this is going to be the face-off. This is the big book that Harry and Voldemort are going to face each other. We know from the prophecy that only one can make it out alive. We know that no one's off the table in terms of who could die. It's a perfect setup to make us care about every single thing that happens next. Totally agree. And again, we care about the deaths because we care about the characters. Right. Awesome. Now we're going to go into the micro structure analysis. And just like we've done every time, we're going to look at how the scene works, why it works using those five commandments from the story grid. We always start with who's the character we're following and what is their goal. This is a tricky question because we are taking such an omniscient perspective in this first chapter. Whenever you're going to track the five commandments, we do like to figure out what is the goal. I actually had to find the five commandments first before I could decide what the goal was. But it seems like the most important thing that happens in the scene is the discussion about Harry Potter and how the Order of Phoenix plans to take him from right. Privet Drive to unnamed Order of the Phoenix member's house, right. which is going to be the borough. So Voldemort's goal is to figure out the right plan to transport Harry so that he can interfere and kill him. My version, which is the exact same as like Voldemort, wants to hear the reports so that he can figure out mm-hmm. how to stop Harry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just real quick to kind of ask yeah. you a question out of curiosity. Yeah. Because we're going, Savannah and I, you'll notice we'll probably talk about this, that there are multiple crisis questions, that very strong crisis questions and clear crisis questions that belong to multiple characters. And that's why it could be difficult to figure out what do you choose as the main five commands scene? We'll give right. our reasons for why we chose what we chose. But I am curious to set this up because the the characters that we also thought about crisis questions, we deal with Snape, we deal with Lucius Malfoy. What do you think that their goals could be in this scene? And is there anything that on the page that indicates what those goals could be? And that's a good question. And I think that we could probably find if we thought about it, five commandments for all of those characters. If I'm being Snape, my goal is to report and to also underlying every single thing I do is to not get caught. But he wants to report because that's what he's been called to do. Right. And then if I'm Malfoy, I probably just don't want to die at this point. Like, yeah. he doesn't have a lot of agency. So the only thing he can have a goal on is behave so I don't get killed. Yeah, don't mess up again. Pretty much. That's where I would settle with it, too. And we thought about this scene from all the different angles like that. We'll talk about this more. It's an interesting one to analyze. So anyway, that's the goal we'll say for Voldemort or for the scene. No matter which way you're looking at it, they're coming to report information and discuss this problem of Harry being moved. Then the exciting incident is that first little unexpected blip of conflict. Mm -hmm. So what did you have for that? For an inciting incident, I would say that it would be Snape giving Voldemort the plan. But I'm curious to what you would think because my turning point is when Yaxley challenges the plan. So is that enough of an unexpected disturbance to be an inciting incident? Well, it's funny because I'm thinking about Voldemort and I'm like, how dare they come on time to this meeting, you know? (laughs) And he even says that like, hey, you guys are very nearly late. Yeah. To me, if I'm being Voldemort, that's what I have. But I could also see it if you want to break it down to, I mean, that is a sentence in the scene, but it could also be Snape has his report and then the turning point could be actually something different. But see, I like yours better because it's unexpected. I think that's the thing is like when I was going through what would be the main source that would create some sort of sense of agency or movement in the story that the plan is then going to work as like a complication, right? Mm -hmm. Or like a source of information. So between the inciting incident, the turning point, both Snape talking about his stuff and Yaxley talking about his stuff are going to be 
a plethora of complications. Right. But it makes sense because the other inciting incident I was going to say was the meeting starts. But is that unexpected? I think the nearly late, I don't think throws, right, it throws this sense of like unexpected disturbance because if they don't show up, there is no discussion. And then it's also like, why aren't they showing up? I don't know if Voldemort gets nervous, but he's at least thinking like everyone else is here I'm totally making this up, but say they're here 10 minutes early. Snape and Yaxley, the two that I'm waiting for reports on, are not here yet. This is mm-hmm. strange. That's what I thought was the inciting incident. And when they walk into the room, everyone's dead silent because they've been waiting. This is literally mm-hmm. what kicks off everything. So, Right. I'm glad that we talked about this because yeah. I, I sat on it with a sense of, oh, I'm not like in love with mine. I, Which, like I mean, in theory... <laughs> It doesn't really change our analysis at all. But I see your points much clearer than my points and feel way more confident about that. Why well, talk about them? <laughs> well, and I, I, I think that when writers are stuck and writing their own, all this to say, when you're stuck, do exactly what Savannah just said. The key thing that she said there, she said, if I was Voldemort, she placed herself in the mind of the character that we think owned the, the Five Commandments. And if you can do that, you're probably going to have a lot more authority moving your chess pieces in the scene the way you want them to be moved because you understand the perspective that needs to dictate how the scene progresses. Yeah. So then, we, like you said, we go through some complications and we get to a turning point, which is that peak moment of conflict, mm-hmm. which throws the perspective character, point of view character into a decision. What did you have for the turning point? The turning point for me was the actually challenging Snape's information. I mean, if you want to piggyback quickly off of that, Snape says, that's what my source said would be the plan to throw it off. I'd say in general sense, it's when the plan is questioned. (laughs) Right. You know, when the information is questioned. And so I had a more generalized version of that, which is the same thing, basically, that Snape and Yaxley have different reports about how and when Harry Potter will be moved from Privet Drive. We're saying the same thing. Abigail got a more specific sentence, which I think is great. But then it leads to the same crisis question, right? Which is, what is Voldemort going to do next? Right. So about yeah. that one. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's this idea of who who is he going to believe? So what is he going to do next? Whatever way you want to go with that, which is interesting because the climax then kind of leads to this idea of him debating out loud. <laughs> he talks out loud to no one, really just to himself, but he isn't questioning things. He's stating things. It's this idea of him talking about how I've made mistakes. This is why Harry survived. And he then doesn't actually give a conclusive statement of who he's going to believe, which is, of course, an intelligent choice that Rowling made because that leads us into not knowing if they're going to be right or wrong when Harry actually transfers from right. one to the other. And I think what's fun about that, too, is it's like he takes the information. And what I had for the climax is that Voldemort is basically saying, I'm going to go after Harry myself. Yes to all you just said about it keeps us in suspense about who is he going to trust. But either way, it's kind of like, and I'm going to take care of it because you guys are incapable and I am beyond mistakes. Yes. I should back up because he does admit that he has made some mistakes, but he's saying it like he's just showing us who he is. He won't like he's PO'd that he's made these mistakes. Right. You know, he's kind of like, what the heck is happening? I should. This should be easy. Right. Right. And of course, he's not. It's all up to luck and chance. And well. I think he's frustrated because the more times that Harry escapes, the higher the likelihood is that the prophecy doesn't mean that he survives. And I think that that's a big thing. Of course, as soon as, and it's later in the story, but as soon as Voldemort realizes that Harry is hunting Horcruxes, the stakes for him are raised astronomically. A lot, yeah. Because now he realizes if this, if he destroys them, I die. 
against type. That's a huge thing. And he, right now, it's not even on his radar that Harry has any awareness of what Horcruxes even are. Right. It seems really easy for him to, I'm just going to go after him. But I think the point of that, like the climax, when you're looking at these five commandments, again, the climax is the direct decision that's made on the crisis. And then everything to follow is the resolution. So that direct decision in a general term is a statement out loud that he's going to go after himself. Even if to the reader, it's inconclusive, the decision that he's made in order of how he's going to go after him. Right. But the resolution then deals, of course, with him plotting out even like half out loud, half to himself about how he's going to go after Harry. So we don't, he doesn't really explore which plan he's going to go after, but he explores how he's going to go after, which is exchanging his wand with someone. Right. On that climax too, I see a lot of writers who they want to keep things mysterious. Mm -hmm. I think this is a good example of how you can, but still provide some kind of answer, right? So I see a lot of writers that'll just be like, and then he nodded to himself and the scene ends, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, okay, we need more than that. This was a way of giving us mystery, but giving us answers at the same time. Right. Because we don't want to be so vague where you're just like, okay, you're holding everything from me and I'm the one who needs the information to read this book. You know, I see a lot of people do that. This is a good example of how not to do that. Right. Or how to be clear so that you're not confusing. (laughs) Yes. In addition to the the whole debate of I'm going to take Lucius's wand. Now we're seeing him start to take some sort of action. Right. Following his action of I'm going to go after himself, kind of like a statement. Then he actually starts as a resolution. He's doing things. Everything to fall after the climax is him still doing stuff. So if you were the writer and based on the example that you just gave Savannah, he thinks to himself, I'm going to do this. And then the scene ends. You lose a lot of interest in magic. Well, and forward momentum and like deepening the decision. It's not as effective as we sometimes think. What it really loses is is raising the stakes as well, because when we see what the stakes are, he takes Lucius's wand and he says, Lucius, there's no need for you to have a wand anymore. We see the stakes are raised for the Malfoy family in general, based on how Narcissa directs Draco to behave and directs Lucius to behave and how they follow suit. So we understand the death stakes there. We see the stakes with Charity Burbage and how he just slaughters her without even thinking about it. We see that anyone, and we kind of know this before, but now we're actually physically seeing it. Anyone who stands against anything that Voldemort speaks for is dead. That's essentially what we're saying. And we're going to start here with Charity as someone that we knew from side conversation but had no connection to until this moment, to the idea of if she's gone, maybe we'll do a spoilers before we get into it. But then a major death happens two chapters later. And then once that person dies, you kind of see, well, once Dumbledore died in book six, you really, you understand that anyone's up for grabs. But this book in particular, the deaths just get more and more personal. So it's interesting to start with a death on the page that raises the stakes in the sense of, anyone's up for grabs who goes against me. And then those deaths to increasingly get more personal to the reader because right. they're close to Harry. And it also sets up because there's, I don't remember what they're called, but the people who are hunting muggles and half the snatchers, the snatchers, right? So they're, it just sets up like he's not, I mean, we know he's not joking, but he's really not joking when he hates muggles and he will do whatever it takes to keep the purebloods on top. That's right. But the other thing I want to make clear, because People might be hearing us say, oh, the Voldemort makes a decision and like nods to himself and then we don't get the resolution. Mm -hmm. You could end, technically you could end a chapter with Voldemort like nodding and not 
have the resolution of the scene in that chapter. We're not saying don't end your chapters at a place like that. We're saying you still need to complete the scene no matter how you do your chapter breaks. Yes. Wanted to mention in case there's confusion. So expand upon that a bit, Savannah. Could you give some details on what Yeah, so let's say, because we said the crisis moment is like, what should Voldemort do about the conflicting details he's getting? Mm -hmm. And then maybe the climax or... The climax of this scene is Voldemort saying, well, I'm going to go after him myself. You could technically have a chapter break there where let's say the next chapter opens with Voldemort saying, okay, Lucius, give me your wand. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the werewolf and Bellatrix's family and let's all make fun of her. Let's make fun of Draco. You could have the scene complete in the next chapter, but you don't want to end your scene with Voldemort saying, I'm going to go after Harry or being elusive about it because then you're just not completing that structure. Yeah. And I think that that's valuable what you're saying because i think it's easy to write the climax and then feel that you've done enough right that then makes us think about why is the resolution so important in these five commandments because i do think resolution can be seen as an afterthought but if you don't have resolution to me it feels incomplete Mm -hmm. so i'm curious what are your thoughts and why the resolution has value well i think There's a few different reasons. So one of them sometimes is it's like, and this is not a good example of this scene, but let's say we're in Harry's point of view. We get that immediacy with Harry. Mm -hmm. He makes a decision and then acts on it. Then maybe we could see how he feels about it. So it's like, now that you've done this or you've committed to doing this, how are you feeling? Which sets up the next scene. Mm -hmm. So that's like one part of the answer. And then in a scene like this with Voldemort, does he have feelings? I don't know, but we don't get a sense of them too much here. It's like he's determined to make his plan work, right? He gets angrier and angrier each time he fails. Yeah. And he's also kind of getting annoyed with people at the table because they're loud and like making fun of each other and all that. He's like not a good example of a guy with feelings that we're going to put on the page. So (laughs) what we do get in his scene is we understand the stakes and we also understand that even his Death Eaters aren't precious to him. So we're learning a lot about Voldemort, a lot more. Because we haven't been in his point of view before. Yeah. The most precious things to Voldemort, and it's not totally seen in this page, but kind of, I'd say the most precious things to Voldemort are Nagini and the other Horcruxes. But of course, we know Nagini's precious because she's a Horcrux. She's a Horcrux. Yeah. If she was just a snake, he probably would like her, but not really care about her, right? Like yeah. just, you can get another snake. But since it's Nagini is a Horcrux, that makes a difference. And... That means that the only thing that matters to him is himself. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting because just looking through like the way that Voldemort acts towards Charity, towards the Malfoys, towards Bellatrix, we know he's not a good guy. He's evil and all that, but we see it. And that's where like I started feeling the coldness of the scene. Mm -hmm. Because other than that, it's him just kind of getting information, responding to it. And here he's literally going like, oh, you must be so proud that you have a werewolf in your family. You know, he's being mean to people that support him. I think it's one of those things when you look at the complexity of villains, the idea that villains, when it deals with what makes a complex villain or what makes an interesting villain, a villain needs a weakness in order to be defeated. But it's interesting to look at trying to figure out what that weakness is and why that makes the character extra complicated. Because you'll look at things like, like you mentioned earlier, Bellatrix Lestrange and her blindness to basically how Voldemort actually views her kind of shows her her weakness, right? Someone like Snape is never going to fall for something like that. Snape's too cunning. Snape has figured it out. And I think he figured it out before he went after Lily. And that's why he was able to turn because he was like, 
this guy is only going to be for him no matter what it's ever going to be. And a lot, it's just, it's fascinating to see how you can have a villain who can rally so many others underneath him who out of fear, because he rules everything by fear and by power and authority. He's this most powerful wizard who can literally do anything to anyone. And it's fascinating to me that the Death Eaters, despite how cruelly he treats them, never want to actually turn on him with the exception of Snape, who's not really a Death Eater, but a Death Eater in disguise. Isn't that interesting? I just find that really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And it's fun. I mean, (laughs) I'm like in my head, I'm like, we could do a whole episode on Voldemort and these of him but (laughs) like if we had to boil down his weakness i think this is a good example to talk about how his weakness is harry's strength Mm -hmm. you know so like what would we say voldemort's weakness is that he is incapable of love he's incapable of connection and then harry has shown us throughout the whole book that he is the opposite of that which to me is a great recipe for hero villain face-off with a shared goal Right. So it's like that's how the goals structurally conflict with each other and the right. friends that they both want to kill the other one. Right. So like how well, can you the get prop- a more direct conflict? <laughs> the prophecy reinforces that it has to be that way too. Right. Right. So yeah. And then okay, so one thing we didn't talk about yet is how would we describe the arc of change? Mm, yes. So for these five communities, you talk about the arc of change. So we have literal change. We're looking at the idea of what literal change is. And then we also have the idea of character change. So we look at character change and then we look at value change. So essentially on this, the grand scale of what do we think the main value at stake here that has changed. And I think when you're choosing the, these changes, I guess what we have to look at, Savannah, would probably be taking Voldemort's perspective if we have him own the commandments with it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and it depends because I think like, I don't know why my brain's going high level first, but if if I think about like, if I'm JK Rowling and I was doing my own analysis of my own scenes, I know everything. Voldemort's decision to, we know that he's decided to side with Snape because we've read the book and we're the mm-hmm. author of the book, right? But this decision in the moment and also for him to go after Harry himself puts Harry in direct danger. And that's what, like, when we call this, like, the beyond the surface change or the high level change is what you just said here. On the high level change, the high value scale, we're going from, it's tricky because, like, Harry's taking from Harry's point of view because he's the one who we care about globally. Right. So, or big picture. already. Right. (laughs) Harry's already in danger. So you could say something like, in danger to... He's in danger, but... On the verge of death. And then he will be in danger without protection. So you could say something like protected to vulnerable, maybe, mm-hmm. in the sense of like, I'd say probably protected vulnerable because he is, he's surrounded by the protection, but when he moves, he will be vulnerable and increasingly more vulnerable because Voldemort is going to attack him. Yeah. And even if you did something like, I'm look, thinking of Voldemort's perspective now, having a general plan to a specific plan mm-hmm. also puts Harry in more danger. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that's the literal change. So that's yeah. where whenever there's a death on the scene, it's really easy for someone to say the scene moves from life to death as right. the literal change. But the scene to me is not about charity. Charity is actually an afterthought. And when right. you said she was part of the setting, she does work as part of the setting. Right. Like I cared about her because of that article, but she is a tool in the scene yeah. to show stakes. You don't, And you don't need a personal connection with her to get that. So that's my literal change for the scene is to have a lack of information to information that can help you make a plan. And notice how I did not have one word to state that literal change. 
And I think sometimes people can get tied up and thinking that they have to come up with the perfect word. Just indicate that there is a change. In order to publish a book, you don't need to have the perfectly written down words for this change. You just need to know that you can defend that there is a change and understand what the change is. So I didn't have a perfect word there, but it was the idea of, I don't have a plan to, I have a plan, right? And you know, what's really interesting is I think this is when we've been doing these analyses of all the books and all the scenes, it's almost like when we say we don't have the perfect word, I think what we're worried about is, do I know what this scene is really about yet? Yes, yes. And so it's almost like we can fuss about the words, but what Abigail and I have learned is it's like, or are you not getting to the right level of analysis yet? Because we could very easily say that, oh, Charity Burbage is dead or, oh, Voldemort has a wand that will work. I mean, even Mm -hmm. if we said that, that still is putting Harry closer to danger. I don't know. If you find yourself fussing over words like we have done a billion times, maybe just say, okay, can I go less literal? Is there an action being taken in here that relates to the global life value spectrum instead of just being like, well, is he near death or is he almost dead? That doesn't really matter. I agree with you. I think that's great. (laughs) Yeah. And then for character change, because we do like to talk about kind of what's the character change. And because I'm I'm going to take Voldemort again, because he's the one who I look at as the driver of the commandments. I think that he probably goes from something like, well, I think you could toss this word out there. I was going to say, I don't ever feel like he's actually too worried until he knows that Harry's hunting horcruxes, which is not this scene, but he is irritated or disturbed by the fact of nearly lateness. So I think you could go, maybe I'd say questioning to confident. I think that's Yeah, or it's like waiting to something or uninformed to informed. And the, and the, the character level we're saying is the specific character's goal. And I don't know what to call it, but like the tactic they're using, what changes there? The change in value versus the change in tactic. Is that what you mean? Well, no, I'm just saying like to help differentiate the levels. Yeah. So like I always think about it, it's it's subjective. Yes, it is subjective. Because we're the author the page. Yeah. Or is the zoomed out perspective of like, we know that Snape's plan is right. We know that he chose Snape's plan. That puts Harry in danger. That's objective, right? That's right. So there's just different ways to look at what we're doing. Something really special about literature is that there is objectivity, but there's mainly subjectivity in stories, right? So it's like this idea of, yes, we're not always going to see everything on the page, but when you can defend with evidence on the page, now you can defend plot and structure. But when you can discuss subjectivity, that's why they'll even say it like once you publish a book, it's no longer your book, it becomes the reader's book. So readers can feel different things and it's likely that our state of beings and our life experiences will influence how we see character changes everything yeah exactly (laughs) yeah yeah but i think that's good like uninformed to informed i went more emotional and the idea of like questioning to confident there is no right or wrong to this but you can see that there is a clear arc of change and you can defend it by what's on the page you can see that like there is something that has changed here even if the way that we see something changed is different i agree and what's crazy is this wraps up our harry potter First chapter, I died. I can't believe it. Now we're going to have to think about what we want to do for well, yeah, and so first we, chapters. We have <laughs> plans for continuing these episodes where we deep dive into first chapters of other books. We have some in mind. We don't know when they will come out, but mm-hmm. they're developing, they're percolating. And we will let you guys know if you have any recommendations, suggestions, hopes, and dreams for which ones we do. Leave us a review or find us on social media and let us know what you want us to dig into. 
Definitely. And, you know, obviously, I guess, obviously, I'm speaking for both of us. I've gotten so much out of these first chapters. And I know that listeners have been enjoying these. I'm just so grateful and sincerely grateful for all of you who have listened. And I'm glad that you're having fun with them and learning from them. I've said this before, but I just really feel extra special and blessed that I have Savannah in my life. I get to talk to her closely. And it's it's just really fun to have someone who's that in love with Harry Potter. And that was um, the origin of our friendship along with dogs. So it's yeah. fun. It's fun to take this now out to you, our discussions and everything. And if you ever want more Harry Potter episodes, I'm also up for more Harry Potter episodes. Yeah, we might do some of those too. So we'll see. And then we also have at some point, the master work guides will be available where mm-hmm. you can look at our analysis of every single Harry Potter chapter in the books. Mm-hmm. But those will take some time. So we'll <laughs> let you know when that's available. But yeah, if you guys ever want to nerd out about which sentence makes the turning point or <laughs> which perspective do we want to look at this scene through, Abigail and I are here. Also, if you haven't heard one last announcement, we have started a book club, mm-hmm. which we're going to do analyses like this, but for a whole book and also for probably the scene of a book. And the first one we chose is Ugly Love by Colleen Hoover. Mm-hmm. So if you guys want to join our book club and geek out even more with us about an entire book, you can go sign up at savannagilbo.com forward slash book dash club. Yep. And we will put that link in the show notes for you guys. Yeah. And I'm really excited to take this to an even deeper level because these episodes have specifically focused on first chapters. And while the book club discussions called book notes, once we get into those uh, those discussions, there are two hour long meetings to discuss the whole book. So while there will be this discussion on big picture, small picture, like we've done in these first chapters, they're going to include even more in-depth discussions on exactly what that means and how it's executed throughout a whole story instead of just one chapter. So yeah. First chapters, I always say it, first chapters are really important. If you don't write a strong first chapter, you will not grab your reader. But your first chapter is only one chapter. The whole entirety of your book has to satisfy the expectations that you set up in that first chapter. Have a strong first chapter. Have an even more satisfying book. Yeah. You have a winner there. Well, but thank cool. you, Savannah. I thank just you. here. I am sad. I'm sad these are over, but there are many more discussions to come. And I'm excited to dig into those with you again. Yeah, we're not done with Harry Potter in general, so don't worry. I don't think we could ever be done with Harry Potter. (laughs) All right, bye, everyone. Thanks. Bye. So that's it for today's show. As always, I want to thank you so much for tuning in and showing your support. If you want to check out any of the links I mentioned in this episode, you can find them over at savannagilbo.com forward slash podcast. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the show because there's going to be another brand new episode coming out next week. If you're an Apple user, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few seconds to leave a quick rating and review. Your ratings and reviews tell iTunes that this is a podcast that's worth listening to. And in turn, that helps this show get in front of more fiction writers just like you. So that's it for today's show. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, happy writing.